Hey there, product lovers. Welcome to the Product Love Podcast, hosted by Eric Bodick, co-founder and chief evangelist of Pendo and super fan of all things product. Product Love is the place for real insights into the world of crafting products as Eric interviews founders, product leaders, venture capitalists, authors, and more. So let's dive in now with today's Product Love podcast. Well, welcome lovers of product. Today I am here with James Norwood, who has a pretty broad background in tech, doing a lot of interesting things. James, why don't you kick it off by giving us a, a quick little overview of your background? Yeah. Hi, Eric. Thanks for having me on the podcast. As you can probably tell, I'm, I'm a native Texan, not obviously British, but I, I have lived in the US uh, now since uh, 2000. I actually moved over here just at the cusp of the dot-com bubble, which was probably not the best best uh, idea. But 20 years later, I'm, I'm still here and I'm, I'm a, a US citizen today, which I'm very proud of. And uh, this is home. And I've spent Probably, well, I have spent more than 30 years of my life in business software, spanning everything from your enterprise resource planning, as exciting as that is, human capital management, customer relationship management, all the three-letter acronyms, customer service, MarTech, you know, even content management, digital commerce, those types of things. So uh, a very long career in business software. So that's my, my background quickly. Awesome. Awesome. So talk to me about how you got into tech and what your current role is. Yeah, I'll try and consolidate those, uh, all of that into a succinct answer for you. You know, I was, I was actually working, I was thought about this. And I, was, I was working for Holiday Inn as sort of part-time work while I was getting ready to go to university to do a philosophy degree. And I was do, working on night audit, they called it. And it was NCR registers and you had to consolidate out all the outlets of the hotel on these giant cash registers. And one day, this team of folks arrived and they said, we're, we're replacing these with IBM PCs, which was quite a thing. And they were green screen and they had sort of five and a quarter inch floppies to boot them up. And uh, I, I don't know, I just took to it. It, it. I found very easy to use, very exciting. So instead of doing philosophy, I, I went to university to do computer science and systems analysis. And I, I was I don't know, I was a while into that and I was learning how to program the DEC VAX using some VM, I think it was VMS was the language. And yet this PC era was dawning and, and it was moving so fast. So I, I actually left the university and that was 1988. And I began my own startup with someone who was my sister's boyfriend at the time. And not that startup was even a term back then. We were bootstrapped, but it was, it was definitely a startup and we, we wrote code. Uh, we built and we fixed PCs. We cabled buildings. Uh, it was the best education I, I could possibly have gotten. And that guy, by the way, was he was just a fantastic mentor. He was very good. He could be programmed in machine code and an assembler and things like that. And he he taught me a lot. And gradually, I guess, I developed my skills. I started doing ERP sales and pre-sales and then implementations. And then gradually, I started to move into things like marketing and product marketing and eventually um, product strategy, which is really my thing. That's what I do is, is product strategy. My last operational role, I was uh, executive vice president of strategy, the chief marketing officer and the chief of staff at a digital experience vendor. And today I, I tend to work more as a strategy advisor for a number of private equity firms and directly, often directly with some of their portfolio companies. So it's, it's been quite a journey. Yeah, so tell me what that's like. Tell me what it's like being a strategy advisor for private equity and, and what problems you're trying to solve. Yeah, I mean, they're, 
you know, I've worked with a lot of PE over the years. You know, they've owned a lot of the companies that I've been an operational executive at, and uh, they they have a lot of dry powder to help with acquisitions and things. And uh, they're great financial folks as well, and and often they'll understand the software business very well too. But uh, I think. You know, what, what they always need is, is subject matter experts. They need people that have sort of lived and breathed operational software businesses for many years to really help them validate a lot of their financial assumptions and their, their business assumptions. And that's just something that I'm, I'm pretty good at reading industry, reading, you know, looking at a company and understanding where it can go and how it might get there. And uh, so it's, it's fun because they give you a lot of credit for your experience and yet they, you know, they know how to do their thing very well too. So I, I, since I'd worked at companies where they've been the owners, it made a lot of sense for me later to have a go at, you know, not just running one company, but uh, helping on multiples. And I'm, I'm really enjoying that at the moment. I still get a lot of offers to, to go in and step back in and run businesses, which I'll probably do at some point. But for now, it's, it's just fun because every day you're working with a different company and a different team and you know you're looking at their specific challenges and trying to help them out so it's a new thing for me but uh, the last year or so but I'm really enjoying it awesome so what what do you think the challenges are and, and maybe the positives too about you know spreading yourself across multiple companies where you're helping with product strategy well uh, the, the challenge is you you're actually not an employee of that company so you're never quite as close to it as you you know you could be and, and after spending 30 years operationally helping businesses and running businesses and stuff it's it's you're always going to be better placed if you're an employee and and you know sometimes people companies can be a little bit resentful of someone coming in from the outside even if they've been recommended or or brought in you know, by their owners, that can be a little bit of a challenge. But at the same time, the, the nice side of it is that you you are getting to uh, one day you're working with, you know, customer relationship management, the next day you're working with finance or something like that. So it's it has it has challenges and it, and it has things that keep it fresh as well. So it's, it's new for me, as I said, and I'm, I'm still sort of finding my way and I, I bring strong opinions. Uh, I, I, I don't worry honest and transparent with my views and sometimes that goes so well and sometimes not so well but uh, I think again I'm fortunate that the the CEOs and the, and the owners that are bringing me in have a lot of respect for what I've done in the past in many cases they've worked with me or or experienced me in the past and and that you know that goodwill has helped. Let's, let's jump back to your past a little bit talk to me about your time in product marketing what it was like what you did. Mm-hmm. That'd be a great place to start. And maybe we can get into, you know, what people get wrong with product marketing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I guess product marketing is what I was always meant to do. I mean, I, I, I didn't know that. Uh, it, it wasn't something I went really looking for. And I think it is what, still what I am at my core. It's what excites me the most. You know, I, I'd been in enterprise sales for some time, you know, so I was selling software and and I did okay at that because I had a, a reasonably technical background. I, as I've mentioned, I'd been I'd learned how to code, and I was you know was writing software f- for some years, and and then I sort of moved into pre-sales. So I, I was always able to offer a sort of consultative sales approach, and uh, you know I, I felt I was good at being able to show people their future through telling stories and that and that type of thing. And I and I remember now <laughs> it's going back to like a global sales kickoff event. I think it was in 96, 
it was 96. And I was, I was watching this vice president of product marketing up on stage. And it was in front of thousands of us salespeople. And he was explaining the product strategy, you know, what, what the, and the roadmap and what we were going to have to sell for the next year. And I remember thinking to myself, you know, I, I want that job. I want to do what that guy's doing. And, you know, I was fortunate that um, some years later, I, I did have that exact job at that same company. So, uh, you know, it was, um, it was a good company to be at. There was a lot of clever people there before they all sort of moved off in the dot-com period. And, and I really did get a good grounding for the discipline of product marketing there. Very talented folks who many of who are still my friends uh, to this day. I, I learned a lot from them. I, I drank from the fire hose, if you will. And of course, things change over time. You know, uh, waterfall has, has become agile and clouds replace license and, you know, um, digital marketing has replaced traditional marketing. And I've lived through all those things and product marketing as well. I'm, I, it was such a young discipline, even when I first got into it. it, it's changed a lot too, but it's everything I learned back at the turn of the century still underpins much of what I do today. And you say, what, what do people get wrong about product marketing? Well, first off, I would say um, too many people underestimate its importance, maybe because it has marketing in the title. <laughs> no, no disrespect to my marketing colleagues, but you know, in, in many businesses, I find the role of product marketing or product strategy, product evangelism, product management, they're all rolled into one. A lot of companies still think that, oh, one person can do all of that job. Sometimes they're split. Sometimes it's a department. Sometimes it lives in R&D. Sometimes it's in marketing. But wherever it is, it's, it's just essential to business success. And I once had someone come up to me rather somewhat dismissively and say to me, you know, well, what exactly does your team do all day? I had a product marketing team. And so I answered by saying, why don't you come and work for us? You know, why don't you come to the team and find out? And they did. And a few months later, they were like, you know, wow, I had, I had no idea that you do so much that, you know, so much gets done here in product marketing, but, but yet so many, so few people actually see what, what it is that you're doing. So I think it's a, you know, it's essential to business. Uh, another thing I'd say is that people either gravitate, their skill set either gravitates them more towards maybe inbound, so more of a product manager skill set, or, or outbound, more of a product marketer skill set. And, and although there are one or two people that do both, you know, uh, very, very well, it's rare. And I, I think that you should try to play to your strengths. You should, you should work out what you're best at. You know, you like being on stage or you like working with the engineers and you should build that discipline. And finally, I'd say that, I think a lot of engineers often dismiss product marketing too. It's not, not just because that marketing time. I, I did once have an engineer say to me, sort of Swedish company, and they, and they said, I, I really don't see the need for sales or marketing. You know, if, if we build great products, we just, we just don't need it. You know, people are just going to want them. And I'm like, well, yes, maybe, you know, if you're Revolut or TikTok or something, but not if you're an enterprise customer relationship management system, you know, it's, it's not going to sell itself. <laughs> Yeah, I, I think that's interesting. There's there's always been this <laughs> this little bit of this fallacy that some department is not important. Like it, it used to be that I would hear a lot, you know, back in what I would consider the dark days of product management, that you know it doesn't matter what the product's like because I have such a great sales team. We can sell you know those the ice to you know whatever. Uh, <laughs> and now I hear a lot of the opposite, which is like, oh yeah, we don't need salespeople. Our product's so good it's going to sell itself. And there's like that's the opposite end of a pendulum that's still wrong 
you know? Yeah. Uh, but <laughs> let, let's step back a little bit too, because product marketing, you know, sometimes it sits in the marketing organization. Sometimes it's part of the product management function. Frankly, I, I think it belongs in marketing, but how do you define the roles and responsibility of the product marketing organization? Let's, let's take it up a level just so our listeners can get kind of a, a, a basis of what we feel defines product marketing. Yeah. I, you know, I, for me, it's, I don't think it belongs anywhere today other than in its own team. Over the years, I've gone, I've gone every way on this, but you know, I, I really think it belongs in its own team. And I, and I think that there are multiple roles as well. You know, that I believe there are product marketers, people who are good writers, people who are good at you know, sales enablement, bringing things to life from that perspective. I, I think there were a, a very good product managers who are really good at you know those those user stories, the use cases of of listening to customer needs and translating that into a, a way that engineers can get excited about and work from. And I, and I think there's product evangelists as well. You know these are the very big ego folks that um, are not particularly good at man management. You know people management. They don't have those skills because they're they're real individualists and they should be kept as individualists in my mind. You're unencumbered by those sorts of things and allowed to just go out and do their thing and spread their opinions and, and the like. So I, I think it's, you know, it's a team, it's, it's a team today, the product team, and it has multiple roles and disciplines within it. And I think in that way, it allows itself to be more visible within the organization when it sits within marketing, which it can, or when it sits within R&D, it can get lost a little bit. And it also then ends up reflecting too much of the needs of each of those groups so having its own independence for me is absolutely essential today. Yeah. So then, I mean, you're, you'd have product marketing, part of the product group reporting to a, a CPO who works for the CEO. Yeah. I mean, you know, a chief product officer, a chief strategy officer, yep, but, yep. De- but definitely a seat in, in the C-suite reporting directly to the CEO. And I think one of your former guests on this podcast, Greg Katichia, I think he said the same thing. And I, I absolutely agree with that. And uh, my, my last couple of companies I've been in, that's exactly how it was. And it made a, it made a huge difference to moving things ahead. Now, I, I have to say, I've been working recently with one company. They're over 200 million in revenues and profitable, and they have no product organization. They don't even have product managers or product marketers in marketing or R&D, they've actually managed to achieve this side by everybody sort of wearing a bit of that hat. And I've seen that in companies up to around, say, maybe 20 million or 40 million in the past, but uh, never at that size. But I think that's an exception rather than the norm. And uh, I've made a strong recommendation to them. That they, they build a product team fast. But yeah, I mean, it's, for me, that's the way it has to be. Yeah, no, I, I would agree with you like 90%. And I think a lot of it depends on the personnel, right? You know, when you have yeah. a... You de- I'm a huge fan of the need for a chief product officer or, or you know, a CSO, chief strategy officer, however you want to form that, but someone who owns product and who sits at the executive table. I think product management should report through there. Most likely, I, I design too, unless you have design also having a seat mm-hmm. at the executive table and splitting that out. And then my only difference is like, where does product marketing sit, right? Is it a marketing function or is it a product function? I've always felt it becomes like, it's that glue that connects marketing to product and, and, and fits in the, in the marketing organization. But I, I think a lot, of de- a lot of it depends on the type of company you're at too and the personalities that are in those executive roles. Exactly. And I, you know, I say I've, I've lived in organizations where it's been everywhere. I mean, it's quite common, you know, even to just hear the term product manager, but what they're doing is, is all of those roles. And that that's quite common as well. But, you know, 
product marketing is probably more closely aligned with sales and the marketing team. You know, they're supporting them with with assets, they're supporting them with sales enablement, but but that doesn't mean that they should report into them. You know, just yeah. like sales operations used to be in sales, but now it's much more of a sort of financial GNA. You know, I, I think the bigger you get, the more these disciplines need need to exist in their own right and and have the independence and the authority and be accountable, of course, to to get done what they need to do. Yeah. So, I mean, when you talk about day to day for product marketing, you know, one of the things that always comes up, especially with B two B SaaS companies, is who owns pricing, right? Is that a product marketing function? Yeah, I've always owned pricing, and uh, that doesn't mean that you have some carte blanche though to to just go off and do what you want. I product marketing for me owns it and is responsible for it, but if they're not getting input from sales, and I don't mean deal by deal related yeah, yeah. input, but <laughs> if, if they don't get the approval and the buy-in from the sales leadership, it's not going to work. So they should do the analysis, they should do crunch the numbers, they should work with finance with customer success, with, with every other department, but ultimately they own it in my mind and uh, finance might put it to, you know, put it to paper or operationalize it, but it, it, it's a product marketing owned thing. Pricing is it's fundamental to, it's as, as important as naming, it's as important as, as positioning and differentiation. And even in mature markets where it's really hard to differentiate on price, there's so much you can do. And you know, I, I, a lot of people get their education, you know, through pragmatic and stuff like that. I actually say I've never been on a pragmatic course, but I've sent every product marketer or product manager I've ever employed on them. But, you know, a lot of people go through things like the Professional Pricing Society and uh, learn a lot about that. And it's, it's a skill set. It's a, it's a very intricate and important skill set. And I, I, I don't think it can live anywhere but uh, within product marketing. Yeah, I, I find that it's an area that product organizations as a whole have a, a lack of expertise in today mm-hmm. and something that we really need to focus on. Because like you said, it can have a, a huge impact on your business. It, it can. And, you know, you have to look at the size of a company. You look at a company like um, SAS, SAS Institute, you know, the, the business intelligence folks. And, uh, you know, they, they were one of the earliest companies, I think, to move to subscription pricing, even when it was a license that they were selling it. They were always, I think, a subscription-based company. And they actually had an entire team of pricing specialists. And, uh, and I, when I came across them um, you know, many years ago, got involved with them through a partnership. And I'm like, I couldn't believe that how many people they actually had dedicated just to pricing. And yet, it, it, in many companies, it tends to be like you know, something you just do as well as and I do think there's a case, just as there used to be, and in many cases, there is a case for someone focused on competitive intelligence, not something I, I think is a standalone thing myself, but I do think pricing has a degree of sophistication, particularly in the, you know, in the cloud world today. There are so many levers you can pull to help a business grow and develop through pricing strategies that you can't just leave it to people that are doing it as a part-time thing. You need professionals. Yeah, no, I would, I would 100% agree. And I think it's something that, especially at, at startups, they, they don't give enough attention to. Not to say you're going to have a team of pricing analysts as a startup, but that you need to put some focus on and really think through it because it's going to have a huge impact on your business, how you go to market, what your customer expectations are. There's lots of things that revolve around pricing that people just underestimate. Yeah, absolutely. And, I, you know, when you're VC-backed or you've got angels and stuff like that, you don't have access necessarily because you don't have the staff and you don't necessarily have access to the skill set. But in the, in the private equity world where I've, you know, I've been mainly involved, either in public companies or PE-backed companies, that sort of 50 million to 300 million rapid growth phase, 
you do have access to the, the PE firms as well. Most of them will have embedded consulting groups, um, you know, a little bit like sort of the Boston Consulting so the world. They'll have their own teams and they'll, they can come in and they can help you with that. They're very, very good at financial models and, and they can come in and assist. So there's um, ability to get access to support there if you don't have it internally. Not everyone, as you say, can go out there and have the, um, you know, be, be in the wonderful position to hire a full-time pricing professional. Now, you mentioned uh, competitive intelligence too. Uh, skill set you expect to be part of your product marketing group? Yeah, maybe that's just maybe that's just me because of the way I've developed and the way I am. But every time I ever came into a company where there was someone based on competitive intelligence, they were just kind of researching the web and then you know typing that up and pushing it back out to the salespeople. And I and I think every salesperson should take competitive intelligence seriously themselves. And I think every product marketer should be responsible for competitive intelligence in their space to be on top of their competitors, what they're doing on top of the industry, knowing what's going on, doing their own research. I just think it's a fundamental part of the job. And if you don't do that well and you can't read between the lines, you don't know what's going on in the industry and, and be able to sort of look out and disseminate what's going on there, then you're not going to be a successful person. So for me, I, I don't see that as an individual profession of one person or a team you go to for it. I, I think it's part of the fabric of a, what makes a good product person. And sales, sales as well should take on a degree of, of that ownership themselves. Yeah, yeah. So one of the things you mentioned, you know, as we were talking about product marketing was storytelling and kind of hinted at that. So let's talk a little bit more about storytelling, especially B2B storytelling, because I feel like, you know, B2B companies often overlook or neglect or don't understand the importance of storytelling. So talk to me about good storytelling in a B2B context, what it looks like, and how people can get better at storytelling. Mm. Oh, wow. <laughs> Yeah, you know, I, I agree with you, uh, Eric, entirely. You know, I, I have a very good friend of mine, an entrepreneur and an inventor by the name of Tiffany Norwood, who's no, uh, who's not, not a relation, but a very good friend. She's built an entire methodology around storytelling. She calls it the Tribetan Method. And, and she says that it's the science of turning imagination into reality. And I, I couldn't agree more with that. It, it's stories and only stories that bring things to life, particularly in tech where there's just so much jargon that we live every day and we know it because we're in it. But, you know, our customers, they're like, what on earth are you talking about? And, and there are also so many people claiming to do the same thing. Obviously, you know, I, I've spent most of my career in very mature B2B software spaces like CRM, like ERP, where it's incredibly difficult to differentiate. And you have to work really, really hard to get your message, your differentiation across. And, and so effective storytelling is the way to do that because it creates emotional connections. And that, that's how you go about it. So whenever I present, I always start with a story. Anytime I've ever been on stage, I begin with a, a short story. And I use stories as both uh, analogous and as transformative tales. I think if you, can, if you can tell a really good story, quickly it needs to be short and with real belief you know you've got to buy into it yourself you can't just be retelling it it can cast a very big halo across whatever you associate it with you know when when you're able to create that tingle down the spine of the listener or you even get a lump in your own throat when you're telling the story then then you're connecting with your audience and that's the sort of benchmark i i do when i'm ever putting together keynote speeches and i'm up there on stage if i'm not sort of getting that lump in my throat while I'm telling it, then I know my audience isn't going to get what I want from it. So I, I like stories with contrast. 
You know, I like to be able to tell the before, what was done, the after. I, I like stories that have nothing to do with your product per se. It should never really be about you or, or even the person you're telling them to. But they need to be able to see the correlation and then associate what you're saying back with that. I, I don't think it's hard. I think you just need to find those stories. I, I avoid things like politics. But anything works in the economy. Sport is always great for, for stories. And especially, you know, your own customers. For product folks, you know, there's nothing better than going out and visiting customers and hearing what they've been done. They're a treasure trove for stories. And then if you can tell them effectively, then that's great. Typically, when I present stories myself, I try to just talk or maybe just use one image. You know, if you've got the dreaded PowerPoint, which I have a black belt in, obviously. You know, just one slide, one picture to tell that story or maybe one or two, never any text. You know, if your listener can't visualize what you're saying, it's not going to resonate. So it's, it's tough. How do you get better at it? Find the stories, to keep telling them, get excited about those stories. And, and uh, I've, I always find the best ones are just, are just out there and, you know, looking you in the face, they're simple, go and find it, tell it, and then do it in a way that it kind of can associate itself with your company That's or your product. That's the best way to do it. If you can make that link, it's, um, I don't know, maybe there's a knack to it, but uh, you know what it's like when you're listening to a presentation or stuff, and uh, until someone actually starts talking about a real-life story, you glaze over. Right? So it's all about stories. Yeah, That's what yeah. keeps people engaged. Yeah. I mean, I guess there is a framework or a methodology, right? Tiffany, in Norwood, no relation. <laughs> no relation. No, she, she does a good job of teaching people how to do that, and typically she works with, uh, you know, sort of entrepreneurs and VC-backed folks, and, and I obviously have, have worked a little bit higher up in the food chain of companies, but uh, it's the same thing. You know, for her, it was all about going to tell a story to get funding, and, you know, you have, if people aren't going to buy into what you're doing, you're not going to get that funding, and for me, it's about telling a story that makes, you know, one person say, why should I care about your ERP product over the next that's claiming all the same things? Interesting. Sounds like a, a future podcast guest for Product Love. <laughs> <laughs> so one of the other things we talked about when we were delving into product was product positioning. So let's talk about that for a little bit. How do you get product positioning right and what do people tend to get wrong? Yeah, you know, it's, it's the hardest thing to do well. I mean, if you think storytelling is tough I and mean, you can learn to tell stories, but product positioning is, for me, it's the hardest thing. And I think it's what product marketers, product managers, they struggle with the most uh, as they develop their discipline. And therefore, when you get it right, when you get positioning right, it's, it's the most rewarding part of the job. At least it is for me. It's the most, the most satisfying thing to get right. You know, positioning, messaging, your unique differentiation, something that's very dependable that you can build, you know, um, your sales team around. It's the holy grail for B2B success and no differentiation lasts that long so positioning is always this sort of transient thing it's always this thing that's that's developing and if you can get it right you can um, create this I, I like to call them a hill to defend for a while and you stick with that for as long as you can until someone else comes and does something better and then you, you need to move on but I, I find a real reticence in in product teams to do it because it's hard you know it's it's really hard there's no silver bullet there's no quick fix it's something you develop and you improve on in your skill set over time, just like storytelling. Uh, you know, I'm a bit, I'm somewhat technical, even though I haven't coded for many years, but I'm creative as well. I'm, I'm a very creative individual. And I think you need a little bit of that combination of left and right brain to do positioning well. Uh, and, you know, someone once told me that 
always start with by writing the news release. And I guess the press release is a bit of a dated concept these days, but it's still perfect for product positioning exercises. And so you, you write that one page press release and you work back from there. And I still do that today. I do that for the companies I work with. They're, they're getting ready to launch a new product or acquire a company. And they're like, James, you know, how, how do you help us position this? And I'm like, okay, let's, let's write a one page launch and one piece of news and uh, that your readers, the reader of that is going to care about you. It's, it's always the, so what, who cares? Why you? Those are the questions you're looking to answer. And I, I still do that. And I think it's a great exercise. And if, if you can read that then and you can get excited, then yeah, everything else, all of your rest of your position can be developed back out um, from there. Yeah, I, th- I think that's good. You know, the, and Amazon uses that, right, too? Always look, thinking about writing a release before uh, they push out a new product, a new set of features, and a new version. Yeah, yeah um, not, not, not an uncommon approach, for sure. No, no, I, but a, a good one. So, you know, we obviously live in, in interesting times now with, with the pandemic going on, lots of remote work. How do you see remote work affecting the product world right now? Yeah, good question, and I'm sure you've asked this to, to others as well. You know, I, I think it's the fact that we would never have dreamt about six months ago. I, you know, and, I, and product teams have managed pretty well with remote activity for some time. You know, I, I've been, most of the companies I've worked for, and it's different if you're kind of a startup and you're all in one building, but most of the companies I've worked for have gone through um, a lot of acquisitions. So, you know, you've, you've ended up with different cultures and different teams and not just in different offices around the country, but in other parts of the world. So you, you've had to deal with that. But the way you dealt with it is you, you did 300,000 miles a year on United, you know, and, and you got out there and you, you did those whiteboarding sessions with the team. And, and I do think that we lack that. We lack that FaceTime, which is really important. And, and FaceTime doesn't, doesn't give you that back. You know, those innovative sessions where you get some of those aha moments and the light bulb goes on is, is when you have a whiteboard and you're, you're all working together and, and we don't have that right now. And you, there's lots of remote ways to do it, you know, but it's really difficult to do things like colored sticky notes on whiteboards remotely and there's software to help with that. It's just not the same. I think people need to believe in the mission of the company. You know, they need to understand the means to end. They need to understand their role in the business, in the big picture. And even though you can present all of that stuff over Zoom, there's nothing quite like, you know, sort of pulling all the scrum teams together in one room and looking them in the eye and, and saying, here's where we're going, this is what we're doing, and then taking the tough Q&A from them. And it, it's, it's, these are things we, just, we, we can't do right now. I, I think good product managers are, are predicated by getting out and visiting customers. It, it uplifts their their skill set, it uplifts their ability to be successful, uh, it validates or updates their assumptions about what they're thinking, and that's usually tough right now. They, they can't bring dev teams together and, and go work with them side by side, and they can't get out with customers. So it's, it's challenging, and it, for even those businesses that have used to working repart- remotely a lot of the time, they were always just a flight away or a drive away, and yeah, it's difficult. Yeah, I guess it could be a, a, an opportunity for new innovations. I'm thinking of like, yeah, you know, the future of Oculus with sticky board, remote collaboration environments. Exactly. And uh, there is, I've been searching for software like that myself to help companies with sort of product positioning sessions, which I would normally do as a sort of two day, bring the management team together and, and some of the senior executives, you'd have like 20 people in the room and, and I'd facilitate this positioning, messaging, differentiation stuff, and you'd end up with thousands of stickets and, and you know, tear-off sheets on the wall. And there is software to help with that, for sure. 
I, I just think you lose the dynamic of having people there without any disruptions. And yes, you can try and use video so they can't go checking their phones and stuff, but there's nothing like saying, okay, this is an offsite, we're all together and we're doing it. So at some point in time, the value of human to human physical contact it just can't be replaced. Yeah, yeah, no, it's it's hard. I was I was imagining the Oculus world, right? You put on the headset and you're all mm-hmm. like in the same room together. <laughs> I think we're still a little ways from that, but that would be kind of interesting. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, one of the things that's changed a lot, and we, we talked about this earlier uh, before we, we jumped on the podcast, was, uh, you know, the change from waterfall to agile. You know, every team's increasingly agile these days, and, and it's probably been that way for a while. Tell me what you think about that dev process and, and specifically, you know, how we're in this world of remote work, how that affects it. Mm. Well, for me, the move from waterfall to agile has been perhaps the single biggest development in software product creation in the last 50 years, which is, I guess, from the beginning then. And by that, I, I think it's been a positive development because it's better for customers it's better for developers. It's better for everyone. During my time up in Silicon Valley, which if you've, which if you've never done and you work in software, you absolutely should try to find a way to get up and live in uh, the valley for a bit. It's just such a unique world all of its own. But I, I once worked with this company. I was in a building and we, we were surrounded. We had Google in the next building, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn offices surrounded the company. It was, it was surreal. We were in the, it was the epicenter of agile almost to a ridiculous degree where agile and the approach to agile became, you know, just, yeah, it, it almost lost the, the customer at, at the end of it. So it was, it was a weird thing. But I think one area that hasn't changed as much since agile came about, as I would like to see is, uh, and this is a sensitive topic, uh, is accurate time and, and therefore cost forecasting around development projects. You'd think that the move to Agile would make it much, much easier, you know, with short sprints and stuff to be able to produce burn down charts and things like that, that really make it easier to forecast out when things are going to be there and, and how to cost it. But engineers hate this. They've always hated it. They don't want to record their time. They want to commit to anything. And I think a lot of it's because they're very naturally optimistic people. They always overcommit to what they can do because they want to work on the next project. And then what they do is very hard. So it's not always easy to, to deliver to that, those commitments. But, you know, sales has forecasts that they have to commit to. Marketing has lead goals they have to commit to. Services have net promoter scores that they have to commit to. Uh, and, you know, Agile should be made to monitor software development better than it does, but I think Agile almost relishes their sort of hands-off, no roadmap approach. You know, that in Waterfall, you have these big roadmaps that kept moving back because they were the 18-month release kept slipping. <laughs> <laughs> and now in Agile, you, you can't have a roadmap at all because it's like you'll get what you get when it arrives and then you know, there'll be an MVP and we'll develop it on from there, but it doesn't always happen. So I don't really think that'll change, though, until it becomes more automated. And I think this is a bit t- sort of tying into the working from home you know, you can use artificial intelligence, you can use automation, almost taking the overhead off of the engineer, take them out of the equation, and we'll be in a better place then where, where every time you log into something, every time you're doing something, it is getting tracked. And I know that sounds very big brother, but there has to be some level of accountability. Uh, and remote work, in my mind, is, is putting a lot of pressure on, on agile teams now, because a lot of companies who are embracing working from home and remote work for the first time and maybe may not even be going back to the office because of that or looking for ways to, you know, not, not make sure people are still working, but they're looking for ways to, to say, how do we make the best out of this? And 
find a way to do that. So I, I have seen a lot of tools cropping up for helping the sort of recording of, of that. And that, that's good. It's important because it ties into everything that a product marketer or a product manager does as well as understanding the costs, the duration, those side of things. And, you know, there are many product teams that live off P&Ls and, you know, I'm, I'm neither for that or against it. Sometimes it's a very good thing to do. And I think, you know, the one thing that's missing from that is always the, uh, the cost and time of development. But uh, I'm starting to ramble here because these are some of the topics that I, I feel very strongly about. Yeah, no, no, no rambling. I, I think it is, you know, it's always a challenge. And, and I think Agile's had such huge impacts in the world of software development and in the world of product too. But there's always a, a challenge with it about how you tie together like a long-term vision, uh, a medium-term roadmap and sprints. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think that's one of the benefits of Agile. I, that's what I like about it is, you know, and, and this is a big part of what I do when I advise companies today. I, I, first thing I say is, what, where's your long-term strategic roadmap? You know, it doesn't have to have dates on it. It's just what's the directional thing. And, you know, software industry moves so fast. I, I, I believe that you never should have more than what I call three waves, which is kind of last year, which is still working on, this year, which is you're going to work on and, and, and will develop, and then a year away. I mean, a three-year horizon uh, as a strategic roadmap is is more than enough. And then, yes, you take that down a level and you have something a little closer to home in a product roadmap, and then you have your sprints. And I I think it's a, it's a good way to look at it. And uh, it's a lot less rigid than it used to be. Yeah, and I like to tie it into storytelling. Like, tell me the story of what your product does, how your customers use it three years from now, you know, where it yeah. brings them joy, the problems it solves. And it, it doesn't need to be at that, you know, functional level, right? It Hopefully. needs to be at kind of even the emotional success mm-hmm. level three years from now. And then you can start making sure that the sprints are building up to the features that need to be there in order to deliver on this vision three years from now. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, this is a... This is something that people don't always get. You know, it's, I make it a point whenever I join a company of going and meeting with the development team, the engineering team, the operations teams, and, and giving them that vision. Because quite often all they get is user stories. They, they get a piece of it. They never get to envisage. And that's where, you know, user experience folks and design folks can come in but, uh, and business analysts. But so many times they just get their piece and, and it, it just can't replace the value of someone, you know, that's got the whole vision for the strategic vision for the roadmap for the company for the next year of going in and just talking through it in terms of here's what our customer's life is going to look like in this. And it yeah, doesn't absolutely. exist yet, but it's yeah. So and then they, yeah, it crystallizes. It does. Yeah, it's it's, so it's powerful, hugely so powerful. inspiring to those engineers, right. To be able to say that this isn't like the feature you're going to deliver in a couple of weeks or a couple of months. This is like how your customer's life's going to change three years from now. This is what it's going to look like. This is like, you know, how they're going to be empowered. This is why they're going to love you. And I, I think that is, that is inspiring to, you know, the engineering team too. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. So uh, another thing we chatted about, future of DevOps, right? It's an area of passion for you. Talk to me a little bit about DevOps, why it's important for product managers, what it looks like. Yeah, this is a subject I'm particularly interested in right now. I, I think it's possibly even bigger than the shift over the last decade from monolithic waterfall to, you know, to agile development using microservices and containers in the cloud. And, you know, this whole evolution to you know, um, infrastructures, code, continuous integration, continuous deployment, continuous testing, continuous monitoring, continuous anything. It's changed the base of application lifecycle management beyond recognition. And, you know, and, and that comes with the change in software cadence as well. You know, when I first got into the business, 
it was 18 month releases, which ended up being three years late. Uh, and the quality issues you had and all of that stuff, you know, that came with Waterfall. And now, you know, the last company I was at, they did 52 releases a year. So once a week, they were dropping code. But there are companies that are doing tens of deployments an hour. And if you just try and get your head around that, it has to have a new way of working. And that's why DevOps is is where it's at at the moment. And it's going to be, in my mind, the battleground that's going to be fought over for ownership of the heart of DevOps, and it's going to be between the likes of Microsoft and Amazon and Google, and I, I guess even Atlassian, although Atlassian is not in the same league size-wise. They certainly have been around, and capability-wise, they, they're a player there. And, and for good reason. You look at the DevOps market, you know, all the, you know, the likes of what the Gartners and the Foresters say, a five-year compound annual growth rate there is, is 20 to 25%. You think that other software sectors like ERP or CRM, they're sort of 6 to 8%. This 25% is a pretty good click, and there's somewhere in the region of 10 to 15 billion is going to be invested in DevOps in the next you know, five years from now. And I've seen Microsoft make some really big moves here. They want segment leadership. They always had sort of Azure DevOps, as they call it. They had that for a decade, and they weren't particularly good at it, which is why at last year, did so well at application lifecycle management, but their acquisition of GitHub for me was it was inspired. It brought in very very strong source code management into Microsoft, which is the foundation of DevOps, and uh, and it's open source as well. And Microsoft, obviously, you know, uh, Satya Nadella did a great job of making that company to, moving that company from a licensed company to a cloud company, and now I think they're moving from very quickly from a commercial to an open source business. So developers today can code. You don't have to be on Visual Studio or .NET. You can be on you know, PHP, and you're still within the Microsoft world. It's great for them. So I think that acquisition was great. It left Amazon Web Services behind. They're naturally worried. It helps Microsoft compete with the likes of CloudBees, Sonatype, Atlassian, of course. And in time, I think Google, who are moving in that direction as well. From a product manager perspective, I think... Not only do they need to understand that development and operations are not separate things, you know, they're DevOps, they're inseparable. And they're, they're, well, this is my view. And again, it might be controversial, but the, even the last business I was in, uh, you know, only uh, operationally, there was development and operations. And yes, they had two leaders and they reported up to the CTO. So they're in the same group as such, but they were separate teams, you know, and too many organizations today still set up with product development and operations closely aligned, but as separate teams. And I think if there's one real opportunity for product teams today, for product management, it's to step up and clearly define a better way of working between you know, support managers and live in some success world or the professional service groups and operations and development. I just see it. it they don't work well together. There's crossover all over the place. And the end result of that is the customer doesn't get the best possible service from, from the company. And if you're dropping coders as often as, you know, hourly or daily or weekly, it's going to be problematic. So I think there's a tremendous opportunity there. And as DevOps starts to develop itself as a market, it becomes more mature and the big players throw money into that. It's going to be like Agile. There's going to be disciplines that, that set themselves out. And I think product management has an opportunity to really take a stake here in owning how that will look moving forward. Feels like there might be a James Norwood startup in there too. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I don't know about that. I think my startup days are gone. But, uh, <laughs> but there's some serious passion there. Yeah, there was some definitely. And I and I I do think it. As I say, watch this space. There's going to be more acquisitions. It's going to be big moves. There will be innovation. 
because of that, um, you know, you always get disruption. You always get innovation where, where are the people um, trying to own a space that's developing fast. So it's exciting for me. Awesome. So let's move on from DevOps and let's talk more about, uh, you know, product management. And we talked on remote work, but now I want to think about more of a regional lens, maybe when we return to normalcy. You know, first, tell the viewers, the listeners, I guess, in this case, uh, where you're based. And you've had experience with product management throughout the world. So talk to me a little bit about how product management is different in different parts of the world. Yeah, you know, I, I live in uh, Southern California, been here for 20 years, you know, uh, living in the beach cities south of LA. And um, Even though you're a, a Texas Brit? <laughs> even, though I'm a, even though I'm I'm, I'm British, you know, and uh, you know, I was born in Britain. And, you know, and obviously I, I spent three and a half years, up, you know, doing the SV life as well. But, you know, this is home for me, albeit it's very, very different to London, where I, you know, before I moved here, I, I spent 12 years living in London. I still have family there. I still think of London as my second home, you know, and, uh, and culture's great. But I, I don't think fundamentally product management is that different geographically. I, I think it's culture that is. And, you know, it's the cultural differences that tend to transcend the discipline of product management. You know, I've worked with product and engineering teams in, in places as diverse as um, Vietnam and Sweden, in uh, cities as different as San Diego and Berlin, uh, which, you know, each had their tech cultures or Moscow and Sydney, oh, some, some of the stories. <laughs> but the discipline's the same. It's just how the local culture informs it. You know, for example, in the Nordics, it's really, really important to be successful in product, if, if you're in product management, to ensure everyone is appraised of what's going on. Everybody's given a voice and the chance to be heard before any actions or decisions are made. If you just come up and say, this is the way it's going to be, this is the decision that we've made, you're going to fail, right? Uh, even if you've already made that decision, you've got, you've got to, you, you, you know, it's a very collaborative and inclusive culture and, uh, and it pervades everything that's done and software development's no different. So, you know, to be an effective PM, you know, just as it would be in any role, that, that culture has to be respected. So I, I'm not sure geography makes all those differences. I, I think I'm fortunate that in my 30 years, I, I've always worked for companies that have had, you know, offices in other parts of the world, either through acquisition or, or through organic, you know, sort of organic growth strategies. And I, I've been fortunate to have visited 25% of the world's political geography in my time. And, I, and, and it does give you a very unique view into how teams work in different parts of the world. And I think you have to be so careful to respect culture uh, in each place and try, again, try to work that to your benefit. You know, if France and Germany, for example, are very, very different to the US, you know, and, and the US and Britain are very similar, those teams will, will naturally gel and mesh quickly. But you can't go into France and suddenly say, okay, you all need to work seven days a week and 12 hours a day like they do in the US. It's just not, it's not going to fly. So you've got to accept things and pay people to their strengths in, in that way. But I, the, the core discipline for me isn't different. I, I don't think I've, I've seen enough differences to, to say that. It's, it's just about how you, manage, how you manage the sensitivity of culture. Yeah, so tell me a little bit more about the sensitivity of culture. We talked about France. We talked about Nordic. What else? What other tidbits do you have? Uh, you know, it's, you don't like to generalize on these things. There are, there are, you know, people are different everywhere, so you have to be very careful about generalizing and stuff. You know, I, I've met people that, you know, I said Sweden is a very 
collaborative culture, yes, but I, I've met people there who are, you know, workaholics. It's that like to move fast and stuff. So it's, you know, it's very individual. But, you know, you look at the Asian communities and, I, I've, again, I've, I've done a lot of offshore software development where we've had teams in places like Indonesia and the Philippines and, as I said, Vietnam. And, and people don't like to speak up there. Again, you know, you, you come and you present the strategy and you ask questions and you get nothing. No one says a thing, but you get them one and one that they're going to open up and they're, they're going to ask. So, again, it, there's a hierarchical sort of culture in Asia about, when you should speak and when you, sh- you know, if you have seniors in the room and stuff like that, which is just changing, but it's, you know, so learning and being cognizant of those things and then finding the best way to help people have a voice and, and do stuff is really important, you know, and it's, uh, as I say, it's, it's different everywhere and uh, you can't change it. You just got to work out how to work within it. Got it. So now we live in this world that's becoming more and more product led. What do you think about the product led movement? You know, should all companies have a, a product-led focus? And, and how do you get people to see the value of being product-led? Well, I guess it depends much on what, how you define product-led, really. And, and that, that would be different at, at different companies. You know, I've, I've been at very successful companies where a head of product, which we talked about earlier, you know, a chief product officer or chief strategy officer, in, in many cases that, that might have been me, reported direct into the CEO and, and the product team was that group in its own right. You know, I, I, I call that a product-led company where they have that ability to do that. But that's very different to, say, engineering running the show. <laughs> I've been in companies where that happens as well. And, you know, if we're honest, I think if you look at a lot of companies today, they do well because they have a visionary product leader at the helm. You know, I, I know of one very profitable billion-dollar public company out of New York, which I, was, I worked for for a while, that's had the same CEO for 30 odd years and he's still an engineer at his heart. He's never happier than when he's playing with code and stuff, but they're a billion dollar profitable public entity. Um, You know, there are many startups I think that do succeed because of the entrepreneurial vision of their founders, but they, they then, in my experience, they tend to struggle when they're moving to that next stage where they're trying to bridge the gap into sort of, you know, that rapid growth stage because they lack the commercial not acumen as much, but just sort of the depth and experience. And so being product-led there can hinder you if you don't have the right way to scale the business about you. So I think it makes sense where it makes sense. And uh, as I noted earlier, I think some products build their own success through just, just being very high quality, through ease of use, through elegance, and through word of mouth, you know, things like social and uh, media streaming apps, things like Spotify, so, you know, Swedish English co-invention there. That's a good example. It didn't need marketing. It didn't need product marketers and stuff because it spread through, um, you know, through word of mouth, things like Instagram and, and the like. And, and those, in those companies, I think it's really good to be fiercely product-led. But when it comes to enterprise business software, if you've got an ERP stack like SAP and stuff, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I'm not as much as a convert. I've worked, as I said, with, with companies. I think you reach a point where you know, you, you need to break out product team in its own right. And the product team needs to be as accountable as, as anyone else. You know, the product management, they're setting the vision, they're setting the strategy, um, they're owning your go-to-market, your strategic direction. And if the company is going to give you a seat at the, in the C-suite and you're going to um, drive the company forward, you've you got to be as accountable as anyone else. So you, have, you need the authority and you need the accountability. So product-led, I think, works at both ends of the spectrum, and it can be a little bit tricky in that transitional phase. So talk to me about other trends you see in, in the product world, things coming up. 
Well, as I've noted, I, I think DevOps is, is definitely the next big battleground. Let's see, I, I, I've been pretty busy working with a lot of firms recently, but I, I do think it's interesting to see how, you know, sort of low code, no code is going to mature and how that has the potential to disrupt DevOps in itself. You know, the, the sort of opinionated and underopinionated a- application development. I think that's interesting. And, I, and then, of course, there's AI and quantum computing. And I, I don't just mean, you know, your machine learning algorithms yawn. <laughs> Everybody's got some algorithms now, yeah, or even yeah. or even deep learning models and stuff like that. What I what you know, I I mean the really scary stuff where you combine quantum you know, commercial grade quantum computing with AI. That could be the next big product world opportunity, or it could simply be the end of the world. I I, I don't know, but uh, that's happening now, and that's uh, that's very interesting. That's that that's the next thing on the bubble. I think. So as we wrap up today, let's turn this back to James. Talk to me about your favorite product. Oh, my bicycle. Uh, we were talking about cycling before we, we came online, Eric, but um, my favorite product is my bicycle, I, without doubt. It's, um, they keep innovating. They keep making them lighter, more aerodynamic. There are electric-powered ones out there now. You know, this sort of everybody's working from home, so now everyone's got an electric bike or a Peloton or whatever at home. So they're way more expensive than they've, they've ever been, you know, more than cars in some, some instances. But fundamentally, the design of the bicycle, the product itself has remained unchanged in 200 years. That for me is the definition of a successful product. My bike that I ride today, carbon fiber, you know, all of that stuff, it looks just looks almost identical to a vintage bicycle from you know from the uh, early 1800s, and uh, I think that's that's an incredible feat. There's not many things that are as resilient. Awesome. What is your bike? I have a I have a Colnago. It's handmade Italian bike. You know, I, I love my uh, Italian stallion, and you know, it's it's made by Italian artisans over there in Italy. They they take half the year off because they're Italians, and uh, so you, when you place an order. You know, you have to wait for the nine months of summer. They, they take off and then they, they get to work on it gradually. And it's kind of blessed with the salty tears of the team before it leaves the factory. And uh, you really feel like you've got, you know, the, something of the ages between your legs there in terms of your, your, your mount. And it's, um, it's a beautiful bike. As I said, it costs more than my wife's car. So uh, she doesn't know that. But uh, <laughs> we, won't, we won't tell her. Uh, I, I got a lot of miles in on it. You know, I feel it's, it, it keeps me healthy. It keeps me fit. I try to cycle three times a week, usually around 60, 70 miles a time. And uh, that keeps me trim fit. I do some of my best thinking on the bike as well. It's a great reflective opportunity. Awesome. Well, one final question for you today. Three words to describe yourself. <laughs> Jeez. I listened to some of your other people doing this, so I thought, you no, know, maybe I can get ahead and... Uh, do this, but I, I guess I'd have to say um, never knowingly underopinionated. Awesome. Well, thank you, James. This is a blast. I greatly enjoyed myself. Hope you did. Yes. Thank you, Eric. Thank you for having me on. Love the podcast. Keep up the good work. <laughs>